Our podcast is presented by TechGC. If you want more information, you can look below. Chris Sands is a professional chef. <laughs> TechGC. Here we are. We're here. Andy, nice uh, nice little table over your shoulder there. It's uh, very Victorian. Thank you. I, I, I need to put something on it. It's pretty It's pretty empty. Yeah, what do you that's kind of what I'm getting at there. What you, yeah, what do you think should be on there? Like maybe a bowl of candy? Well, I hope you don't put like some vase or some shit. Like, I don't know, put a football helmet on top of it. Mm. You know, shake, put some color in that room. That room is a little like, uh, you know. A not I do have a I, <laughs> I do have a Ray Lewis signed football, which I'm sure my wife does not want in another room, which would be probably good up here. Yeah, looks, put it uh, there. Looks good. More <laughs> like yeah, you yeah. gotta put some color in that room. I mean, look at my look. At, you don't have to go extreme, like you know, like Amazon jungle, like my office. But man, you gotta put some colors in there. Yeah, well, we this is a new, still a quote new room, so I haven't done much. With, but. <laughs> 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 all right man well we got a great I'm really guest excited today. about today's guest man i'm really pumped about today's guest spanish speakers spanish born you know le- legal leader like anytime we get a guest like that on the podcast i get really giddy and excited and our conversation was awesome so i'm, I'm excited yeah. to share it with the world i met him a few years ago as manuel martinez herrera he's the gc at better cloud i met him when he was running the legal team at a company called namely and he was in tech gc and we did a a thing where we spoke together and we did one of those prep calls and the guy was just, yeah, I like just, you know, one of those right away. Oh, I like him right away. <laughs> just, you know, honest, yeah. practical, probably, probably dropped a F bomb, you know, just normal. Smart. Just a normal person, man. Like, like it's funny, like in our world, like just being normal is exceptional. Like he's just a, a, a cool guy. Yeah. And he gets into sort of like, the role the role of the gc in being that stabilization kind of person and i think that comes from a, a sense of quote being normal or being practical and steady which i think is really valuable in in any legal role really yeah i'm excited to share the combo with the world and we t- talked about fucking pencil sharpeners dude like we, yeah, we covered yeah. a lot of ground yeah all right well here it is We're here. What's that, man? I guess we're barely, we're barely here. We are barely, barely here. here. <laughs> uh, Andy's, Pedro, Andy's Pedro wearing. And Andy's wearing. Hold on. Andy's wearing his winter clothing just in case uh, a snowstorm blows by. So thank you, Andy, for being ready for any weather event in the middle of the summer. Well, he lives in Boston. It like snows all the time there. <laughs> yeah, it is August tenth. It's not snowing. <laughs> But uh, I got my AC pumping. It's been so hot. So yeah, I'm wearing a. I'm wearing a. There's a big environmentalist. There's a water ban. I was like, if there's a water ban in Massachusetts, we're really screwed up. That's (laughs) really a water ban. At least in a bunch of towns where I was, like in Essex, uh, in that area, water bans everywhere. Hmm. Holy shit! Well, you know, when I was when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, South Florida would have um, like droughts which is insane when you say that out loud and we would not be able to water our yards or do any of these things. And I remember being like eight or nine being like, but there's water everywhere. Like what the fuck does this mean? You know? Um, and uh, so to hear that there's a water ban in Massachusetts uh, really isn't tracking in my brain, but, but I get it now, I guess. Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not in Nebraska here. 
Oh, don't bring up Nebraska to me. I'm really mad at Nebraska right now. Yeah. 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 Well, let's let's talk about our guest instead. We're joined by Manuel <laughs> Martinez Herrera, the GC at uh, Better Cloud. But when I met you, you were running the legal team at Namely. Um, so will you just give us like a quick a quick summary? You've been in a big law firm and uh, a couple other places. Um, so give us like a quick a quick background and and we'll we'll go from there because you've got you've been in some interesting stops along the way. Yeah, uh, I mean I'm old, so I don't know how quick this can be. <laughs> stops, but I'll I'll try. Um, I'll, I'll skip quickly over kind of my background pre-law. Um, but I'm originally from Spain. Moved to the U.S. Uh, in 2005 to do an LLM. Um, and then 2006, started working at Big Law. I worked at White & Case for almost five years. And that's where I got my introduction to privacy, actually. I was doing a bunch of international privacy laws, so nothing to do with U.S. privacy laws, which, as we all know, they're you know, a shit show, but mostly EU-directive, pre-GDPR uh, type of stuff. And then from there, I moved in-house. I moved to MedLife, so huge company to do privacy stuff at the beginning. Um, I was there almost for four years, and I, you know, it was a great introduction to being in-house. I learned a lot, but definitely it was not the right fit for me, the right environment. So I was lucky enough to be able to move to a tech company, which was a good fit for me because it was Namely, which they were doing employment. Um, they were doing HR uh, benefits and payroll. And because I came from an insurance company, I had an uh, insurance brokerage, some expertise there. I had a privacy expertise. I had done employment law before. So it was a good fit. It was an unconventional way to get to a tech company, but a good fit for me. And from there, I obviously learned a bunch about SaaS and the subscription model and all that. And then moved to Better Cloud um, now almost four years ago. And I've been there since yeah, October of 2018. And we've been through a bunch. We've been through our Series F. We recently got this transaction with Vista, where they acquired a majority stake in the company. So it's been a it's been an awesome ride. And uh, was MetLife uh, a white and case client? Or was that how did that come about? Um, no, it was uh, one of those days. You're at a big law. You're hitting your life. The phone rings. It's a recruiter, and they're saying, "I have the perfect job for you." And you're like, "Fuck, it, okay, <laughs> let's do it." Literally, first interview I do at the law firm, and then I get the job. You're like, "Okay, I guess I'll I'll join them." I, I'd give this advice to everybody now. Don't just uh, accept the first offer you get. You should look a little farther than that. <laughs> but yeah, that's so I have. Well, well, when we talk about big law, right, there's there's big law, big law firms, AM 100 or whatever. And and I think of White and Case as like the biggest of the big, e- even in terms of the the, the, the white shoeness of that firm. So like, the name, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so I'm just curious, like, you don't see a ton of White and Case folks go you know, into the tech GC world, it happens. But right. so like, what made you know, like, this isn't working for me and I think something else would work for me? Or did you have to like experience that through MetLife yeah, actually, and different? I had a, a lot of people complain about their big law years. I had a great time. Um, why in case, yes, very big, I guess very white shoe, but very international too. So when I was in the New York office, there were a bunch of people that I could 
speak Spanish with, right? A bunch of Argentinians, a bunch of Mexicans, a bunch of Colombians, uh, Brazilians too. We were all taking Portuguese together at like 9 a.m., being 25, being hungover from going. It was, it was a, it was a fun time. You know, you work a lot, but I had a huge international community at the office and uh, the partner I was working for, Don Dowling, shout out to him. Great guy, great mentor. So I, my experience was really good. It just is the typical thing. You work a lot of hours. I was getting married and you're like, you know, am I going to make partner? I don't know. Maybe, but I don't think so. Uh, is this life for me type of thing? But yeah. all good things to say about White and Case because they treated me really well. And they're definitely now trying to get more involved with Tech GC. But yeah, the community, I, I look at the Tech GC numbers and I know the people there that are involved with Tech GC. It's just like five or six of us that are part of, of this community. So definitely not the typical feeder to uh, tech careers. And uh, was Namely, I'm curious, was Namely like uh, your first lawyer in? build from scratch kind of deal or, or were the pe people there already there was a lawyer there uh jen healy shout out to her now she is the gc now at susie um another tech company and she's great but her main f uh, focus was basically the commercial contracts right doing the working with sales and she's outstanding at that um they brought me to kind of focus on the corporate stuff the regulatory stuff um scale the function um so she had she had done an, a tremendous job building the commercial function side of the house. So that and the procurement side. So, I mean, procurement, like vendor contract, right? Um, so that part was really well covered. And then I partnered with her, obviously, on privacy stuff. And, and then I was dealing more with the corporate and the regulatory. Um, so it was not totally building from scratch because she had done a great job. It was an amazing experience for me, though, to learn and then not commit the same mistakes when I moved. I learned so much about the things you shouldn't do. So when I joined VeriCloud, it was amazing because in my first six months, I was like, boom, boom, boom. We can do this big win. We can do this big win. Not because I'm smart, just because I fucked it up before. Um, so uh, that was a good experience. Oh, I've learned from so many fuck-ups. <laughs> That's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially how, does especially know, how it, hard it, hiring it, is. I got a, I got, I got a question. Um, how has your sort of career trajectory as a Latino man shaped how you do your job? I, this is the first time I've been doing this podcast for a year and a half. I've never been able to ask this question. So I'm really excited. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> you to us. Yeah. Um, I, um, the one thing I would say is everywhere I've been, I've been very involved with uh, diversity and inclusion, both at Namely and at Veracloud. I'm the executive sponsor for our DNI um, programs. So I myself obviously recognize there's there's um, we're underrepresented. So I'm I'm doing my best on on that side. But to your question, I think even before I got into this, when I was at Warren Case, I always felt like I had a chip on my shoulder in the, in the sense that I was joining calls or whatever and the American, and also being an LLM, to be honest, that that has, has another yeah. chip on my shoulder. Um, but the, I would hear the American JVs participate in the call and be like, I don't think they know what they're saying, but they sound so confident. They sound so that they're yeah. making so much sense. And when I speak, it's like, clearly I have an accent. Clearly I'm not from here. And I may know what I'm saying, but I don't feel that confident. So I, um, it took me 
a little time to, to get there. So there was some of that. Um, but I think we bring, um, what you tell me, I think Latinos, we bring this um, empathy and, and ability to socialize that I don't know everybody has. So it, it has been very helpful as we're cultures that were really open, meeting people and, and getting, creating relationships. This is my experience. So it's been very helpful to create relationships and lasting relationships that have um, brought me from a job to another job that were helpful um, getting shit done, right? So I think that that's been very helpful. And on the other so, side, I'm yeah, sure Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Finish up, finish up. I was just saying that on the other side, I'm trying to give back by by uh, pushing all these DNI programs everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. So that's been very rewarding. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And your point about how underrepresented we are really strikes home to me in this conversation. And I'll explain why. I've been at this for 15, 16 years. You've been at this a long time. We work in the same space. We're in the same groups. We have the same connections. This is the first time you and I have ever talked. And like, it's not because I didn't even know you existed. <laughs> this is the thing. Like, it, it, there, there's just so few of us and we're so focused on doing our jobs well so we don't get fired because of that confidence thing that you're talking about. Um, and, so, and you know, like for me specifically, like imposter syndrome and like just a lack of, uh, you know, feeling that I belong at the stations that I'm navigating, um, that I don't have the time to go often and seek out my peers. And when I say peers, I don't just mean legal peers. I mean, people like you that come from, I was born in Spain too. Bet you didn't know that. See, like these oh, are the I things like you were Cuban. My family is Cuban. Yo soy Canario. I was born in the Canary Islands. Yo soy Canario. Ah, so, Canarias. yeah. Si, si, si. Yo soy Canario. Speaking Spanish on this podcast brings me almost tears because, like, I just, you know, I can feel off. I often feel very isolated in my practice. Um, you know, I will go weeks at work without talking to another Latino American, and that is difficult. Yeah. And that goes back to my point about white and case. It made me feel at home to have so many Spanish-speaking lawyers. We would have lunch every day together in the forty-second floor or whatever it was. Argentinians, Mexicans, Colombians, Spanish, Brazilians, and it was it was great. Pedro, do you have that at Meta? It's a huge, huge company. So, do you have that? I do not have very many Latino American peers. I have to seek them out actively and we huh. don't overlap in our work very often. Um, I don't think that's a meta function specifically, although meta can do better for sure. And I apply that pressure. I'm as we talk, I'm on the, I'm in a chat thread with my recruiters talking about uh, underrepresented groups right now, literally, uh, because I'm hiring a bunch of people and it, that's really important to me. But to answer your question directly, no, I don't think I have it. I don't have a lot of peers and I find myself regulating my cultural behavior quite often for normative groups, not just at Meta, but at conferences. You know, I get a lot of feedback about my personality and how that's a big strength of mine. Very few people in our profession get to see my personality because I have to uh, curate it quite a bit to make sure that I'm uh, not uh, aggravating Western sense, uh, Eurocentric Western sensibilities at work, right? Um, and I'm sure uh, many people with my background, like Manuel, feel the same way often. Yeah, it makes doing the job harder because I I don't just have to think about what I say. I have to think about like culturally translating what I say all the time. Like my family, for example, and a 
when I used to work at a law firm, we also had a, we were based in Miami. We had a like gigantic Latin American business, right? And many of our clients, CEOs, general counsels are Latin Americans or Latino period. Like they're from Brazil, they're from Argentina, they're from wherever. Um, a business meeting with a group of Latino executives is a very different dynamic than my everyday business meeting at corporate America. For example, like the ideas of like, let's go around the room and all raise our hands on Zoom. It's just ridiculous in a meeting with a bunch of, I don't know, <laughs> Colombian executives. Like that's like a ridiculous proposition. And and to me, it's like a natural, but I have to behave in these ways or else people are like, oh, you're being a bully on the Zoom. I'm like, well, no, I just like interruptive conversation is the nature of my dialogue. And I have to like <laughs> regulate that because my cultural authenticity is not accepted in work yet, but we're getting better. Anyway, Manuel, I'm interested if you think I'm like being dramatic or you feel and see some of that at work, especially you, because you're a, a C-suite level leader at your company. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of truth to that. I think obviously after years of being here, you get, um, just kind of get used to it and, and it becomes yep. second nature to you. I, um, mm. actually something I, I, um, I take pride of is, um, I don't know if it's good or not, but I'm pretty good at like adjusting. Right. What is the environment? How do I have to behave based on who am I dealing with? I think other people are very um, not good at doing that. And it's been helpful to me, right? Because I can create, it helps create relationships that you can kind of like behave the way you're expected to behave. It might be a bad thing at the end of the day, but it's been helpful to me. I don't know if it's a bad thing or good and smarter people can debate that. What I know for sure is that it's an additional burden. Right. That like the normative group, like you were saying, like the confidence of the American JDs, they just move throughout the world as American JDs. They don't they don't have to do the things that we have to do. They just present themselves as they are all the time. And then often the feedback is, well, I don't understand what you mean. Well, of course, because you get to walk around the world as yourself all the time. Um, I, I don't get that opportunity very often. Yeah, the, the, my first day at law school here when I went and um, we were taking classes with the, we took all our classes with the JDs and the JDs were just raising their hands every time yep. and answering what I thought it was complete BS, but it was sounded so confident. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe they're right. I think this is completely wrong. Additionally, yeah. additionally, a lot of times, you know, I recall from law school, the LLMs have been like doing the fucking job already. And, and, the, and the J, yeah, and the JDs are like, you know, raising their hand to talk about X, Y, Z thing, and the LLM's like, "Well, I've been doing the job." And that's not exactly how how, how it goes. Yeah, you have like yeah, Supreme Court, Australian Supreme Court clerks, um, people that were partners at their okay. firms in whatever country. I heard an LLM student; he was Italian, and I'm gonna butcher this, but I got a huge kick out of it. He was patronized about some debate about the Constitution and democracy, right? And I don't remember what it was a long time ago. And he pushed back and said, don't lecture me about democracy. Democracy existed in my country 2,000 years before your country was created. And this is the truth. Like, you know, like, I mean, so because he's Italian, he's from I mean, Rome and the, these types of thoughts, right? So, like, um, the 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 preposterousness of the posture of like the American jurisprudential juris doctor education system is interesting. I get to see it now from the perspective of a professor and uh, you know, 
there is a lot of confidence in the traditional JD candidate in the US that is misplaced. <laughs> I'll leave then, it there. But to be honest, it's a, it's a skill, it's a strength, right? Like it does take them places. So I, I did learn from that and I was like, start getting more confidence on what I'm saying. So it was a journey for me. I didn't have it at the onset, but now I I do have it and, it, and it's, as a lawyer, you get thrown into stuff all the time that you know you don't have the answer and you just have to figure it out. And and before I would be like, oh, now I'm like, comes from the board, comes from the CEO. I'm like, okay, we'll figure it out. Well, don't worry with about the backdrop, my job. With the, back, with the backdrop of all this stuff, I'm curious about your experience in the management team. You know, because, you know, it, it's you got to use your voice differently in the management teams, like set aside being a lawyer for a moment. I mean, just as a, as a member of the management team, I think uh, the GC's job is to, is to be another rational voice in the room and represent um, the employees and represent, you know, different aspects of the ethical culture of the company. So like with the backdrop of all the things that we're discussing, how do you, how do you think about like your role on the, on the management team and, and what you do there. Yeah. Um, I love what you're saying about the common sense voice. And I tell this a lot to my team. I'm like, sometimes they come to me and they're like, they involve us in this project. There's nothing legal about it. And I'm like, that's fine. They just want you there because you're the one with common sense in that room out of everybody else. You have the best common sense. So they just want to, it's, it's good to be that, that voice of reason. Right. And And I feel that's kind of my, Kind of one of the main roles of the GC in the management room. Um, you definitely have to be go away from being the just the lawyer, right? Like, oh no, that's against this law or whatever. Um, you gotta be there to to make sure things are done obviously ethically and, and according to the law. But you gotta come from a business perspective. You gotta be pragmatic and you gotta find the solution to the to the problem. Um, Without getting, you know, too deep into explaining legalese to to other executives that don't really care about it, right? So I really it, like isn't that the, the trick? I, everything I really, <laughs> I really like the line that I'm going to start using now. You've taught me something, which is anytime I hear something uh, from the ex- from a senior executive, I'm going to reply with, "Oh no, that's breaking the law or whatever." I'm going to use that line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running with that thing, man. That is a great line. Oh, no. And I'm going to use that same tone. Oh, no. That's, that's breaking the law. And I'm... <laughs> this is the direction I'm heading. I'm going to do great. <laughs> that's like uh, that's like out of the family guy or something. Yeah. I, I can just see like the dad and the family guy being like, oh, no, I'm breaking the law. I'm breaking the law. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the only thing I would say is that um, you see lawyers, they have, we, I think we have a hard time not being a lawyer. And when you're at that management team, you want to be seen more as an executive than as a lawyer, right? Like you are there representing the business and you have the special skill of knowing the law. So you're applying that skill as an executive. Um, Whereas many times I just see lawyers being too much of a lawyer. And I don't think that, Andy, um, I'm sure you have the same experience that a companies of our size just cannot be that person 
and be successful and, and, and have the company be successful. Yeah. I don't think you can be that person in Pedro's role at Meta either. I don't want to speak for you, but I, I don't think you can do that in a policy role in a big company either. You have to do the same thing. I don't thing. think any lawyer in any company. Yet. You could be the most junior, like I do commercial contracts, NDAs, right? Like you have to take a business perspective. If you want to take a theoretical legal perspective, they got law firms for that, man. Like you got to come here and understand the business intent and try to make sure that so long as it's lawful and ethical that you can figure out a way to execute that. Like that's the job, man. I mean, that's, that's the gig we are like, I, in a lot of ways, I think, and we talk about this a lot. I don't want to use the word luxury, but I think legal departments inside corporations is an interesting invention. Um, and it's not a law practice in the traditional sense. Like I haven't, practice law since 2014 when I joined a, a big company. Like my job is to use my legal knowledge and substance to advance business goals. That is not like what I swore an oath at the bar to do. It's a different job. Um and like I think you have to adjust to it. Policy, same thing. 100%. How do you approach uh building teams with that in mind? You know that that's something all of us have done. Um how do yeah. you think about that and to me, I always, um, what I've always done is, um, I try to hire all new hires. I try to hire them first to do, uh, the commercial contract piece. I think that's the way they create the relationships with a bunch of people in sales and customer success and services. It's the way they learn the business because you cannot, you cannot properly negotiate a contract to sell the subscription to your business without understanding what your business does and how it does it. Um, so to me, it's the perfect funnel, right? It brings you, lets you test the person to see if they're the, like, the right person. And then from there, if they're smart, they're going to have other things that are strong at, and you can move them somewhere else. So that's what we did at Better Cloud. I brought our first um, hire was Sonal, who's a, our, at the time senior counsel. Extremely good. Um, she's so good. Uh, I, I, I say like, they should fire me and make her the general counsel, to be honest. <laughs> That's maybe maybe we should play. That's out there. Yeah, you just put that out there. That's publicly yeah. out there now. It was Solid only in my mind. Strategy. <laughs> <laughs> the real success, you have to have your succession plan, right? So, <laughs> but she um, she's very strong at understanding uh, technical stuff. So she's now the lawyer for engineering and product, and that's all the IP stuff because she just understands. It's it's you send her to a meeting with engineers and some new engineers at times believe she's an engineer. That's how technical she is. So she's perfect for that. Then we brought our next uh, lawyer, Patric uh, Patricia, also from Madrid, not related to me, but nice. also from Madrid. Um, uh, so we have two Spanish speakers now in the, in the department, which is great. And she started with commercial contracts, um, same way. And then she we started giving her real estate and employment and other stuff and she's enjoying it. So she's moving to do that stuff. So we brought another lawyer to do the commercial contract, but through doing those commercial contracts, they created the relationships. They understood the product. They get obviously exposed to privacy. So it, it, it to me is the best way of bringing lawyers. I like that because specifically I don't, I'd be interested to know if you both subscribe to this because you've both done commercial deals in the past. What I find is, and I agree completely, the better you know the business, the better you are at doing those deals. And the reason I think is because when I ne negotiate, 
I find that that you never win a legal argument. You only win a factual argument. So if you know what your software does and doesn't do, then you win that legal argument because the software doesn't do that or it doesn't work that way or the data doesn't flow that way or we're not we're a processor, not a controller, like yeah. because of the way the data moves. So to me, is that is that what you're kind because I find like that's really where we have success when we're arguing the facts, not like, you know, well, the liability cap is too, too high. And we yeah, don't take that position. We don't ingest sensitive data under GDPR. So why are you asking me to do these things? We just don't, right? And like here's show I can show you that we don't. And then they're like, okay, well then yeah. we won't ask for that. Okay. But you're right. Like when your yeah. lawyers love fighting legal fights, and it's just you, it's not like oh you explained that argument so well that I'm I'm gonna give it up. It's more like give you mean take, you've right? never like, been I'll in a negotiation. Up. Where you lay down the foundations of cons, you know, of contract law by Farnsworth and win the uh, argument. <laughs> How, like, to me, it's so funny when they come to me and they're like, "Under contract law in the state of New York." This- <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm gonna. Can I tell a quick story? I had I had another. I was negotiating against a lawyer, and he said to me, "We were talking about IP indemnity," and he said to me. Well, let me tell you about the Coca-Cola case. And he started talking to me about the secret formula of Coca-Cola and this and that. And I and I was just like, yeah, I hear you on the Coca-Cola case, but you know, but we we just don't we don't we don't do this thing, so I'm not going to give you this indemnity. So like we got to get to a better place here. So, so what you're saying yeah. is you didn't find the Coca-Cola case persuasive. No. <laughs> With GDPR, everybody's an expert, right? Article 47.5, this is prohibited under article, whatever. And then you go read the article and you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't see that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have- people talk about, people talk about GDPR, like all of the clauses and articles in the, in the law have been, uh, you know, uh, affirmed and clarified through the judicial process. Like, I don't care what your interpretation of GDPR is. I only care what the regulator's interpretation of GDPR is. Like, if you can point to something like that, thanks, man. Send me a memo or send me a link to the, you know, the interpretation or whatever. But like, it happens so much and it frustrates me because to back to the confidence thing, it's like this authoritative thing. Well, Article 5, Section 3 says this. So clearly your DMA, I mean, excuse me, your DSA is out of whatever. I'm like, guy, like, where where are you even getting this from? Like, what law firm did, like, why are you telling me this? Like, you're the authority on the thing. Super frustrating. Super frustrating. Oh, and by the way, that's Andy Dale's negotiation strategy. He has a, like, annotation of the GDPR. (laughs) And in every meeting, he's like, well, according to my legal analysis, that, as soon as he starts with that, I shut down. That's a, that's it works every time. I just I open I share my screen and I open up the latest, <laughs> you know, DP, DPA opinion, and then I just start reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I love Andy your post in LinkedIn because just there's so much ridiculousness and how people negotiate. Could be just so easy to fucking get MSAs for. Um, I guess we would be out of a job, but like the type, if you have a reasonable MSA, there should be so little redlining that it should be, it should huh? be needed. Like, just sign it, man. 
Yeah. How do you guys like? Do, yeah. do, so let me ask you. Let me get. Let me ask you guys this. Like a lot of cloud companies, a lot of SaaS companies, have like you know these click to accept agreements, like Amazon. Like they're like, you know, you, you want to sign up for AWS, ninety nine point five percent of their customers just do the click through. Um, our entire like entire legal departments, commercial legal departments are focused on that point five percent. My question is, is that worth it? I don't know. I'm not the business genius, but like, is it worth it for, to spend all the time and money on the 0.5%? I mean, clearly somebody decided it is because every company hires a bunch of people to do it, but just interested in your takes on that. Go ahead, Manuel, and I'll, I'll go after you. Yeah, I, I, I definitely I have wish, my opinion. I wish it was only 0.5% of uh, clients that negotiate the better cloud MSA. It's clearly more than that. Oh, I see. Uh, although we do a good job, it's not, it's not, we have a, not that uh, large of a percentage. Um, I guess it's usually the, the larger clients that command the most money that have the power to do that, and that also come mm-hmm. with their, their amazing friends of ours, the procurement departments, who are the... <laughs> Beloved, most beloved amazing friends. You know, when you see procurement involved, it's just like a smile comes to your face, and you're like, "Oh, this is gonna be such an easy negotiation." Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that's an answer, but that's the best I have. My favorite thing is when I see that email from the procurement people, and it, it there's a document attached, and somewhere in the title of that document, it says checklist that's one of my favorite things um that means it's gonna be real smooth real smooth going forward i got an rfp oh RFP. so we're we're so we're participating in an rfp i'm not gonna say the company but let's just say it's massive it's a massive company we're excited we're excited to be involved in the RFP. I think we're doing pretty well. You know, we're, we're tracking pretty well. That mean the reason I think so is we got the package, just like you're talking about. We got the package earlier this week. <laughs> it's an electronics electronic system that we're oh, supposed to log into, and we're supposed to make our edits or suggested edits in some system where we select things and say what we want. Like it's. It's good. It would take five days to even figure out how to use the system, much less red, redline uh, an MSA like like that's built for buying toilet paper and not for buying SAS. So there, oh, there's also a technology addendum, of course, because you can't just write a SAS agreement. You've got to have, you know, a 90 page MSA and a 40 page tech SAS addendum to buy a piece of software that doesn't even cost 100K. So, like, something's wrong with the system first. Like, just the system is broken. And I don't think privacy helps. I think privacy laws and privacy issues are are creating way more complexity because they're making under 100K SaaS deals, quote, high risk. Yeah. As, as soon as you touch one, you know, name or a last name or anything else, then that, you know, it doesn't matter if you spend $500. Right, it becomes a, a contract that has to go through all the bells and whistles. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of ridiculous. And then, um, yeah, what's going on in the U.S. with all this soup of uh, letter soup of privacy laws? It's just like, like you know. Pedro, what like to to your question though about you know AWS as an example? You know, obviously for companies like Manuel's and mine you're going to pick a cloud hosting provider and you're going to sign, you have no leverage, 
to like to pick the terms and and not 99 times out of 100 he and i are never around when that decision was made anyway that's so right they, that's right they clicked they clicked and i think where we can make an impact is we can understand what that means when we go get diligence to raise around and sell the company and what that means is you know you're documenting the fact that you look at their sock 2 every year or you're you you've got the terms you just have them literally here are the terms like some companies they don't save them or have them so you're you're doing some record keeping but then when it comes to other other vendors you know the sort of that middle of the road or even a large enterprise vendor like salesforce for example your old employer like if you engage salesforce uh and you ask for reasonable things again to our, to our earlier discussion backed up by fact often they will at least entertain it and at least have the discussion with you about it and tell you there's a couple things we can do to address it so i think like it's worth trying at least for some of those you're not going to get very far on your garden variety salesforce crm purchase but as you go up in usage and things change i think you can have that conversation yeah, and I've seen that even with um, the hosting uh, upon renewal. If you do a commit of a number of years and you're going to spend a, you know, it's the biggest spend, I don't know, for your company, Andy, but it's the biggest line of expense. Um, <clears throat> but I guess I'll have to compare with employee. I'm sure employee salaries might be more, but of vendor wise, it's the biggest spend we have by far, right? Um, so, and even then, we're at drop in the bucket of any of these hosting companies because their clients, they have clients that are much bigger. But we've been successful by doing commits of a number of years and spending X amount of million to at least get some things. And like, like you're saying, it's not like anything that you would say, wow, but at least it's reasonable things, changing in reasonable terms to reasonable terms that they know they can live with. So, so there's, there's some of that. And, and you're right. In, in the round of financing, when you're selling the company, those are the type of contracts the buyer, the investor is looking at, right? So you want at least to have a defensible contract. Yeah, they're, do you mean, guys they're looking less the, at AWS. But. Do you guys like on the go contracts ahead. that do, do the contracts that do go to Redline? Um, do you guys ever insert like little Easter eggs in the contracts to see if people are actually reading them? Because I when I I will admit, when I was at Oracle, I did this a ton. And so there are a lot of contracts out there with like insane force majeure clauses about zombie apocalypses and like the like swamp apocalypse and all kinds of little nuggets that weren't meaningless <laughs> and like don't harm either party. But I would put in there just to like see if someone was reading. And I'd say 70% of the time they never came up redlined. 70%, probably higher. My biggest like paranoia I put, I is we're doing the apocalypse in a hundred contracts, a hundred contracts. And like maybe five times somebody said, hey, that's cute. And maybe two times somebody said, get that out of here. That, that's amazing. My biggest paranoia is when yeah. you are doing a Google Doc with your team and you're like putting comments over the comments of the other party. And then we obviously have fun. Oh, yeah. We're like, what, the, what is wrong with this person? What are they smoking? Blah, blah, blah. But then you have to pick up and send it the other side, right? And you're like, shit, gotta make sure those companies don't make it to the other side. And I've seen that. I've seen I, the agreements with their internal comments saying, we could give them this, but we're not going to give it to them unless they push again. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> Let me push again. And I know I can get it. Do you consider a do you consider it an Easter egg when a large enterprise has a form template that includes 
termination for convenience whenever they want or a you know most favored nation clause because to me that's just as equally ridiculous as a zombie apocalypse yeah i don't think those are easter eggs i think those are just like massive (laughs) wins if you land them yeah they're serious. Yeah, they're serious. They're like, yeah, I want termination yeah. for convenience at all times. Like, who do you think you are? Like, right. everybody here is running a business, right. man. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, you, 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 you're paying. You know, we're paying you twenty k. So I get whatever yeah. I want. Termination so for convenience is doing business at gunpoint. Like, in my opinion, like it's just, it's like I want to do business with you at gunpoint. And it's not good faith. I don't, I don't, I don't love it. I'm sure there's some lawyer going to listen to this and send me an email about how it makes perfect sense in some scenario that I'm not contemplating. Thank you in advance for your edge case fact pattern that justifies the rule. But what I'm suggesting is 99% of the fucking time, termination for convenience clauses are bullying tactics. That's my take. It's also anathema to, um, to stats, right? It's recurring revenue. If you have termination exactly. for convenience, it's not recurring. It's like the, it's the whole model doesn't revenue. work. The way we price, exactly. nothing, nothing doesn't it falls down, right? Like it's the one cardinal rule: you cannot have termination for convenience in a SaaS model. Exactly. Exactly. I've t- you know, try explaining that to people, and it sometimes doesn't land. <laughs> 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 well, I, I have a, a last couple, two two questions before we wrap. One, you say in your bio on Better Cloud, it says you love pencils, so I have to understand what you love about pencils. Is, uh, is one I'm, I'm using right now. Um, I love everything about them. I use them as a stress reliever. So if I'm in meetings and I'm doing this, it's because I'm like stressed about something. So I do that a lot. I love the smell when you uh, after you sharpen them. But the story this goes that um, for all, <laughs> it is weird. Always I love doodling. So I'm always doodling on a piece of paper. And um, when I finished law school in Spain and I went to my, uh, I worked at a big law firm called Cuatro Casas there before going to my LM for a couple of years. My first meeting with the head partner that then became the managing director of the firm, uh, recently deceased, great guy for Javadia. Uh, so uh, a great guy. Anyway, I was meeting with him for the first time ever, 23 years old. And he's talking to me, explaining some case to me. And I'm like, Literally fucking doing doodlings on a piece of paper. At one point, he stands up on his desk, <laughs> looks at my paper, and he goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> You've been here for like two weeks. It was like my second week at the job. I'm meeting with a big partner, and I'm like, uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just, uh, <laughs> won't happen again. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. I just always love having a piece of paper and a, and a pencil. I cannot avoid it. I think I have, I have some of that. Japanese pencils, by the way, they're great. Best pencils. Only Japanese pencils. This is this is big. Okay, okay. This is this is good. One of my um, uh, favorite memories of high of like elementary school is you remember the pencil sharpener up on the wall? I'm, I'm I I don't know if that's an American thing, but you know you'd get up in the middle of the classroom to go sharpen your pencil. Okay, so in American schools, at least the ones I went to, um, there would be like the pencil sharpener, and it would be bolted to the wall. Um, in the classroom and yeah you i am i am like a fidgety kid i'm a fidgety person i can't sit still for very long so i sharpen more pencils in elementary school than any human being alive because it was the only way i could get up without permission and the teacher not get mad at me to sharpen my pencil so i would get up and sharpen the pencil it was also a big flex when you had new sneakers like you would wait till everyone's sitting down and then you would get up and walk ceremoniously to the pencil <laughs> sharpener to show off your new sneakers. And Andy, you'll like this because you play tennis. I got 
Andre Agassi green and white Reebok pumps in elementary school. And I can remember my walk to the pencil sharpener. And it, it, it was like I was walking at the Louis Vuitton show in Paris, man. I was living life. <laughs> yeah, we we had the sharpener on the wall. That was huge. <laughs> sharpener on the wall is huge, man. That's huge, huge. I love it. Huge. Thanks All for right, hanging the out last with thing us, is, The last thing is you. Oh, yeah, we got another one. We got another well, one. Well, one more, yeah. Pedro. One more. Real, real quick. Real quick. The last thing yeah. is uh culturally you've lived in a bunch of places i'm just curious you know how new york city compares for you like you know do you do you what do you think of new york what do you think of the culture and what made you kind of stick around um i guess my wife made me stick around i was <laughs> i was close to going back to spain i'm being honest right i was close to being going back to spain in 2010 i had um i was a wedding case at the time I had taken a three-month sabbatical, which was amazing. I traveled across Mexico, Argentina, and then I spent some time back home. But I had met my wife right before. Um, when I came back, you know, it became a little more serious. And I had this plan to go back to Spain after, you know, at the end of that year. And then, you know, it just happened. We now have two kids and a dog. And, and yeah. I, I love New York. I love Bro- We live in Brooklyn. Love Brooklyn. We've been there since I've been there since two thousand eight or nine or um, I mean, New York is. I always say it's a tough place to live, to live in. It's also a tough place to live. Um, yes. You you're there and you're like shit. Everything is hard. Everything is expensive. The weather, it's cold, whatever. But then you're like, you have everything, right? Why would you leave? Everything. So it, it, it has good and bad things and. To me, it is it is a great place. There's certainly a what's magic favorite, about it, what, for what, sure. What's but, your favorite? Um, what's your favorite Rioja wine? My favorite Rioja wine, Cune, uh, it's really good. Um, which my dad used to drink a lot. Um, yeah, we should do a we should do one about um, about food. Do a podcast about food. We should do one about food, Andy. We gotta right. do a we gotta do a bonus episode about just food. My mom's favorite. My mom lived in Spain a long time. Obviously, I was born there. Her favorite Rioja is sort of a table wine, but it was um, uh, Marques de Caceres. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, to this day, I am not a fancy wine person, but anytime I take a sip of that thing, I'm with my mom, man. It's good times. You you can find it in New York. The uh, here in the it exports a lot to the U.S. It's uh, you can find it. Yeah, in the US. you can find it in the states. Yeah. Find in the yeah, you know Andy likes to hang out with us, man. This is cool. This I was like an Paya. honor for me, man. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this was big for me. Like I really enjoyed having you here, and, and and thanks for everything you're doing for our profession and for 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 our people, man. Like just you being where you are, doing what you're doing, is inspirational to me. I'm grateful to to know you. Well, like likewise, and estemos en contacto, Pedro. Así mismo. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs>